Uh, and how about we just feel nudged and prompted? Let's just talk about what happened. Okay. So I, I've been really thinking a lot lately about well, kind of two things have happened. Uh, one is that I've been really thinking about biblical expressions for worship. How does the Bible tell us to worship? Okay. So Psalm 95 says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. So we, we sing in church sometimes, right? It also says, Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. So I have found uh, something going on in my life is just a desire during worship just to shout praise to the Lord. I'm not being weird, although I might be. I'm just being biblical, okay? It says, for the Lord is a great God. It says, come down with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. So let's listen to the psalms, right? It says, uh, further on, it says, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before God, our maker, for he is our God. So it says there that it, it might be appropriate worship to bow or kneel before God. Why? Because we are the people he watches over. So when you see people clapping in worship, uh, when you see, uh, actually, I think Psalm 96 says, let the oceans clap their hands. Other verses say clapping our hands in praise, um, shouting in praise. These are all biblical ways that God tells us to worship. These are all the biblical ways that we can engage with him. And we're all in different places of our comfort level with that, and that's okay. But I think one of the things I want to just name in the room is one that um, as God, as our, our dependence on him and our appreciation of his presence increases, we're just seeing more of those kinds of expressions in worship. And it might be a little weird or uncomfortable, but it's the Bible. So your argument is not with me. Your argument is with, with the Father. That's, that's one thing. And then the other thing I would just say is, you know, yesterday, those of us that were at Natural Supernatural, and that even smacked a little bit, those of us that got to be here, other people had other stuff going on, but we had a really profound encounter with, with God yesterday. Um, three people were healed miraculously, at least. And so part of, if you walked in and the room felt warmer, it wasn't because we kicked the heat on. It's just because, and the best way I know how to describe this is spiritual temperature. Like the baseline spiritual temperature of our church just increases. And spiritual temperature, it's measured by kind of how we're engaging in biblical expressions of worship and and those kinds of things. And so I just want to name what happened in the room. We're listening to scripture, just spending that time listening because we believe uh, worship is a conversation. Uh, prayer is a conversation. It's not just us kind of monologuing at God. Sometimes he wants to say something back to us and creating that space to listen is also biblical. And that's why we're doing that. I'm not saying we're going to do that every week. I'm just saying that this week it felt right for us to kind of even honor the work that some of us got to do this weekend and just bring our whole church into that. And uh, if that freaks you out, the good news is I'm going to do a little bit more teaching on that this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, still in this series, show and tell, proclamation and demonstration with the gospel. How do we say it with our lips and show it with our lives? Um, when I was in high school, I was in the band. Where are my band kids? Yes, Lord. Um, so every four years, we went to Disney World, and we'd march in a parade. And you know what I meant to do? Jenna Byler and I have known each other since high school. We spent our Disney trip together. I actually meant to have a picture on the screen of us, and I forgot to get it. As I, I saw in my notes this morning, picture of Jenna and Kyle. So I'll post it again on Facebook or something. You can see it there. Babies is what we were. I was so thin and had so much hair. Anyway. We arrive at Disney to, for the day of this parade. We're going to march through the Magic Kingdom. 
and they took us backstage, and that's kind of where all the magic happens, I guess, and there's signs everywhere that say, no cameras, no phones, no pictures, no cameras. And here's why, I see Mickey Mouse walking up the like, sidewalk backstage, and he's got his Mickey Mouse head under his arm. <laughs> and he's standing next to Donald Duck. Donald Duck, he's got his Donald Duck head under his arm. And, and in that moment, my love for Disney, which just to be clear, is a covenantal everlasting love. <laughs> uh, it, it was disenchanted just a tiny bit. I want to think this morning about moments of disenchantment because uh, some of you this morning may have, maybe even in the midst of a moment when your world is just a little disenchanted. Maybe your world was disenchanted when your parents divorced. Do you remember when Pam Beasley in The Office, there's that episode about her parents splitting up and she says, you know, when you're a kid, you think your parents are soulmates. Her world is disenchanted, isn't it? I wonder if it was when you were diagnosed with an untreatable illness, like an anxiety that won't go away, a depression that won't go away, a physical illness. I think the reason that COVID has rocked our world so much is it has disenchanted our world because we believed that science could solve that for us, right? It might have been real sometime in your 20s when you realized um, that your body was just never going to look like the other people's bodies on TV or your peers. Uh, it could have been when you were abused by a parent or a grandparent or by a teacher or a coach. It might have been the moment that this person that you thought, a friend, a spouse, whoever, this person that you, you knew who, exactly who they were, all of a sudden in a moment, they're not exactly who they were. And the world is then disenchanted, isn't it? We have these moments when we find out that the world isn't as magical as we once thought. Mary Shelley uh, Frankenstein, we all read her in high school. She talks about disenchantment. She says, when I reflect, my dear cousin, on the miserable death of Justine Moritz, I no longer see the world and its works as they before appeared to me. Before I looked upon the accounts of vice and injustice that I read in books or heard from others as tales of ancient days or imaginary evils, and at least they were remote and more familiar to reason and to the imagination, but now misery has come home. And men appear to me as monsters thirsting for each other's blood. It's disenchantment. I no longer see the world and it works as they before it appeared to me. We actually live in a cultural moment marked by disenchantment. A cultural moment in which all of us no longer see the world and its works as they before appeared. We all read Mary Shelley's book Frankenstein in high school and it was written in an era when magic uh, and, and mystery and the divine were a natural part of our lives. It's, it's not so anymore. Charles Taylor, a, a philosopher who writes a lot about secularism, of this he says, almost everyone can agree 
that one of the big differences between us and our ancestors of 500 years ago is that they lived in an enchanted world. And we do not. At the very least, we live in a much less enchanted world. I mean, if you look at maps from like 500 years ago, on the edges that weren't explored, they just drew sea monsters. <laughs> and now we just have it all filled in, don't we? Right? Taylor says that the enchanted world was one in which forces could cross a porous boundary and shape our lives, but today we live with a much firmer sense of the boundary between the self and the other. He's saying that 500 years ago, it was, it was not uncommon for us to believe that interruption and intervention from the divine could happen to anyone at any given moment, right? So, so when you're reading the crucible, right, and it's so-and-so was speaking to the devil, that's normal, right? Because that, but if somebody walked in and said that to you, you'd be like, okay, well, we need to get them... Um, Let's get them some mental health, right? Why? Because instead of a porous self that was open to intervention and interruption from the other, from the divine, from a spiritual realm, we now have what Charles Taylor calls a buffered self. We've buffered and built walls around ourselves so that those kinds of things can't get in anymore. And because we built the wall so high, we're not even sure if there's anything out there at all. And a good example of this, by the way, is in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, by C.S. Lewis. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there is a magical world just on the other side of our own that you can step into by looking at a painting or by walking through a wardrobe. And it talks about these Pevensey children who walk into Narnia and become kings and queens and all of these stories. But as the stories go on, you kind of find out that one of the siblings, Susan, starts to think, oh, that was just what we made up in our childhood. Those are just the stories that we told one another when we were playing. And Susan moves from a porous self where at any moment she could tumble into Narnia to a buffered self where she closes herself off from any possibility of magic, any possibility of enchantment. Ours is a cultural moment of the buffered self. We have forgotten the enchantment of the world, in part because the world has been so violently disenchanted for us. We've done more than just forget, like Susan. We've actually done our best to close ourselves off from these things, to close ourselves off from any interruption from or intervention from the divine. That's why, I don't know if you remembered last week, I mentioned uh, somebody in our community said, I have a coworker, uh, and they have no interest in spiritual things of any kind. Not just not interest in Christianity, no interest in spirituality of any kind. Why? A buffered self. There's nothing out there. There's no truth or person or, 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 or power out there that could really help me. I'm fine. And so what do you do when you've buffered yourself and you're looking for meaning? Well, you don't go outside because there's nothing out there. You turn inward. You look at your desires. You look at your wants. And in the words of Disney, we follow our hearts. We follow our dreams. Whatever desire or longing is inside of us is ultimate. It has to be pursued full, full tilt. Because there's nothing outside of us that can govern that or describe it. If we need to find meaning, we need to look inward. So here's what's happened then. We, we've disenchanted the world. Bad marriages, you know, I, I, they don't just happen. But somewhere in the decades and years of being together, the spark goes away for some couples. 
And somewhere along the line, for us, somewhere, we lost the spark. We, we disenchanted the world. And yet, all of our best stories, all of our best stories, are about re-enchanting the world. All of our best stories are about re-enchanting the world. Have you ever seen the movie Chocolat? Anyone? It's actually one of my favorites. Okay, I don't know. You guys are missing out. Here's the story of Chocolat. It opens on this drab, gray, French town in winter. And everybody is sad, and everybody is grumpy, and everybody is grumbly, and then in walks a woman wearing a bright red coat. And her daughter is wearing a bright red coat, and they open a chocolate shop. And it totally transforms the town. It re-enchants it. Or what about Luke Skywalker languishing away on his uncle's moisture farm, longing to be a part of the rebellion, longing to be where the action is, hopeless until his a droid his uncle bought displays a message. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And it turns out that that crazy old hermit from across the dunes is a Jedi. And as he hands Luke his father's lightsaber, suddenly Luke is in a world that is re-enchanted again, right? A world that has magic and meaning. What about, what about Bilbo Baggins? Living in his hobbit hole, eating first breakfasts and second breakfasts and then 11Zs and then luncheon and five meals a day, I could live, live a hobbit's life. And his life is a buffered self. He's heard of elves, he's heard of dragons, but he's never really seen them. He would need proof, wouldn't need to believe. And then there's Gandalf the Grey, a wizard, inviting him into an adventure. And before the book is over, there's dragons and elves and dwarves and treasure. His world is re-enchanted. What I, my, my contention to you this morning is that you and I as followers of Jesus have an opportunity to be agents of re-enchantment. You and I can be Gandalf the Grey knocking on Bilbo's door. If you're a non-Christian in the room, what I want to help you see today is a way that God has planned to re-enchant the world through his people. And so to do that, let me turn with you to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians, it's one, of, it's one of actually four letters, maybe five, that Paul wrote to a church he helped start. We have two of those five uh, that are part of Scripture. Uh, and he's writing to a church that he helped start. It's an influential church. It's a growing church. It is a hot mess of a church. Whenever I am tempted as a, as a pastor and as a leader to think, if we could just go back, if we could go back to the early days of church, everything would be better. I open my Bible and I read 1 Corinthians and then I am disabused of that dream. It's like smelling salts. Because let me tell you, they were dysfunctional with a capital D. Um, there's one dude that's sleeping with his stepmom. Uh, there's another, there's, uh, there's, this church has divided into factions, not over uh, masks and no masks, not over vaccines and no vaccines, not over Trump or Biden. They've actually divided over who baptized who, right? Uh, 
there's all of these rich and powerful people in the Corinthian city that have somehow become leaders in this church, even though they have no spiritual qualification to do so. And they're a church that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, they're, they're operating in them powerfully. But as so often happens, they don't have the character that really goes with the gifts. And so things are, are falling apart. So Paul gives a series of instructions to this church about the spiritual gifts. And it's interesting to note that this church that is, is just a mess over spiritual gifts, Paul doesn't say, just shut it down. Don't get weird. It's making people uncomfortable when you clap your hands in worship. Don't. Paul says, no, this is how we do it. We do it to pursue love. Uh, and we do it, we do it with order. We do it with order. It might still be weird, but it's like a loving kind of weird, right? It might still be weird, but it's an orderly kind of weird. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, let me just back up for a second. Paul explains what spiritual gifts are. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, he says, in, uh, he says in verse 1, Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your questions about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand. Evidently, the good news is, if you don't feel like you understand this clearly, evidently they're easily misunderstood, right? In verse 4, he says, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways. But it's the same God who does the work in all of us. He says a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. It's like what Paul is saying is that, uh, and I've experienced both, that the moment a person says yes to Jesus, they are given a special ability to build up the church and advance the mission of Jesus. And sometimes those gifts, because this word manifestations in some translations indicates like a dancing hand, sometimes those gifts come and go. But in either case, we're given some special abilities to build up the church to advance the mission of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says those gifts are things like words of knowledge or, or words of wisdom or, or, or tongues or prophecy, hearing God for others. Uh, but in other passages of scripture, he says there's gifts like mercy and giving and leadership and teaching and hospitality and, and celibacy, aka remaining single for life by choice. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, and so there's these spiritual gifts that were given, but evidently, especially some of these gifts like tongues and prophecy, they're, they're easily manipulated, easily misused. So here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is explaining what the deal is with the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And I don't want to go into a deep dive on this for two reasons. Uh, one, if you were here yesterday at Naturally Supernatural, you're full up on this. And two, uh, if you wanted to know about them, you probably would have come yesterday, so I don't want to bore you on the other end of the spectrum. So um, uh, here, here's, here's what it is. Tongues and prophecy are these gifts of spirit-inspired utterance. It's words that the Holy Spirit gives us to say. Now, in the instance of tongues, it's in the language of angels or men. It, it could be a language that is understandable, or it could be a language that's not understandable. And when it's shared in a gathered setting like this, it requires interpretation. Now, some people have the gift of tongues simply for prayer, uh, which is also good, but that's, that's one of the gifts. It's the spirit-inspired utterance. It's really important. People ask me this. Um, you know what you're saying while you're praying in tongues. You're fully in possession of your faculties 
while you're praying in tongues. That's a difference between the cultural, the cultic worship in the cities of Corinth. The priests there would just be totally taken over and not really know. And that's even the case sometimes with other ways of demonic influence. Um, you kind of lose consciousness. That's not the case with tongues. It's not the case with prophecy. Prophecy is one of those ways that we hear God for other people. Now, a lot, if you're following Jesus, you hear God. And you hear from God when you sin and you feel a sense of guilt and conviction that I did something wrong. That's hearing from God. Um, you've heard from God if you've ever said, you know, the Lord just laid this on my heart, right? Um, but prophecy is this gift that Paul says, by the way, I would love it. He says, I'd like it if you all had the gift of tongues. I'd love it if you all could prophecy. It's interesting that he says that. And, and he says... Um, this idea that uh, prophecy, it's, it's hearing God for others. It's often a word um, or an image or a passage of scripture. It always lines up with, it never contradicts written scripture. And it's got to be weighed by the community. There's got to be a sense of, yeah, that's right. Right? Even as we read scripture together this morning, there were these themes that went through those passages, right? That made me say, yeah, I think those were from God because there was, a, there was like a commonality and a thematic nature to them. So Paul is kind of addressing the misuse of these spirit-inspired utterances, tongues and prophecy, and he's doing that in verses 22 through 25. Let's look here together. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. Paul says, So you see that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. Even so, if an unbeliever or someone who doesn't understand these things comes into your church meeting and they hear everyone speaking in an unknown language, they will think you are crazy. Stop there and say, you think? You know? Verse 24, but if all of you are prophesying and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting... If as we're worshiping, someone is coming in in need of relief and refreshment, and we read these passages of scripture, and they resonate with that person in a deep way, Paul says this could happen. He says, they'll come into your meeting, they'll be convicted of sin, judged by what you say, and as they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed. And they will fall to their knees and worship God, saying, truly, God is in this place. Truly, God is here among you. Paul is telling us that we re-enchant the world by moving in the manifestations of the Spirit. We re-enchant the world by moving in the manifestation of the Spirit. Because here are our friends and neighbors living with a buffered self. They've hidden the secrets of their hearts deep behind a very tall wall. And you can explain the gospel to them. You can preach the gospel to them. You can do apologetics with them. But ultimately what's going to happen is they know what you're going to say. Your words will ping off their armor and they'll continue living with their buffered self. But imagine with me for a moment if you prayed for someone, one of your friends and family that's ill, Imagine with me if you prayed for them and they were healed. Well, we just punched a big hole through that wall, didn't we? Imagine if we had a prophetic word for someone that cut right to their heart. Imagine if our church became the kind of place 
where on the regular people were healed, not just in body, but in spirit. People with a buffered self would not be able to leave without a Miley Cyrus wrecking ball hole in that wall. We could punch a hole through the buffer. Moving in the manifestations of the spirit, Paul says, punches a hole in the disenchanted universe and it lets the magic back in. But it's not magic. It's the same power by which God spoke the universe into being and raised Jesus from the dead. This is what it means to move in the manifestations of the spirit. And this is why as a church we're seeking after a naturally supernatural lifestyle of Jesus. Not simply because it helps us know God more, though it does. Why does Paul, Paul McConaughey, who led this event, said it so well yesterday, right? Why does Paul want us all to have the gift of prophecy? Because he wants us to all be able to hear from God. It's our birthright. He wants us to be able to love one another better by sharing those words. But, but there's an outward purpose, too. There's, there's a purpose and proclamation and demonstration of giving everyone in our neighborhoods and networks an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because we can demonstrate the gospel by moving in the manifestations of the Spirit. We can become agents, agents of re-enchantment. You and I can be Gandalf knocking on Bilbo's door. You and I can be Obi-Wan handing Luke his lightsaber. And if you don't think that makes me so freaking excited, you have not met me. <laughs> Let the nerds rejoice. You know what I'm saying? So how do we do that? How do we move in the manifestations of the spirit? Now, some of you are getting very nervous. You already clapped during worship and listened to scripture. Now what, right? So here's how I built this sermon. I built this sermon to give you the impression that we were going to drive 65 miles an hour over the cliff of the things of the spirit and start speaking in tongues right now. Except what we're going to do is actually U-turn real hardcore just at the edge of the cliff to a baby step that I want all of us to take. Okay, so meet me in Galatians 5. Meet me in Galatians chapter 5. If you're in Corinthians, it's a few pages back. You'll go 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. And let's start together in verse 16. Galatians 5, verse 16. It's not going to be on the screen. I just want to read it to you, okay? So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't do what your sinful nature craves. He says, there's a sinful nature in us. There's, there's something in us. He calls it the sinful nature. It wants to do evil, he says, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And if the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature... And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. This is why there's a war inside of you. If you're following Jesus and you're like... I don't feel like I do the right thing a lot. It's because following Jesus is a battle between two opposing forces living in your chest. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. If you're a non-Christian in the room and you find yourself kind of repeatedly doing the bad, a bad thing, like something that's harmful to you to harmful to other people, 
can I just suggest to you that the way of Jesus could realter that course, right? And, and give you a fighting chance against desires that keep pinning you to the mat every time. And dare I say, if you believe yourself to be a follower of Jesus and you keep finding yourselves pushed down to the mat over and over and over again, let's pray together, right? Because in Christ, we are more than conquerors, is what Paul says. We're not supposed to, we're supposed to live a life of battle, but a battle that's overall in the trajectory of victory, not battle that's overall in the trajectory of defeat. So if that's you, let's pray together after this, okay? Um, verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger. This last part's starting to sound like Facebook. Sorry to sound like the chat, like a champion Facebook group is what it's starting to sound like if you're on that. Um, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these, otherwise known as America in 2021, right? Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. He's using this image of fruit as if to say, the Holy Spirit's life and presence in you will cause like this kind of thing to be produced in and through you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Paul says that being agents of reenchantment begins with having the character of Jesus. Paul says that being an agent of reenchantment begins with having the character of Jesus. The first manifestation of the Spirit, the first manifestation of the Spirit, is a human person being transformed into the image of Jesus, a human person bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says reenchantment is a matter of character, not competency. It's not just about what you can do. It's about who you are. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, which by the way is smack dab in the middle of Paul's teaching on gifts, which means if you had it read at your wedding, it's a beautiful passage that has nothing to do with a wedding. And it has everything to do with spiritual gifts. Paul says, let everything be done in love. Right? He says, I could be, I could be raising people from the dead left and right, but if I am a jerk game over, right? We're going we're gonna to teach on hypocrisy in the church uh, in a couple of weeks, but as a preview, let me just say that I do not care how gifted you are. I do not care how intelligent you are, how wise you are. If you aren't loving, if you're not loving, if you don't have the character of Jesus, if you don't have his tenderness, his steadfastness, if his, his consistency, if you are flaky, millennials, if you are flaky, Ouch, I heard it. Yeah, I, if you are flaky, if you are rude, if you are unkind, you're becoming more of a hindrance to the movement of Jesus than a help. Here is the first manifestation of the Spirit, a human person transformed into the image of Jesus, someone who is being renovated to be like Jesus. Who is You want to know what it means to be a Christian? You're just kind of putting Jesus more and more at the center. 
Verses 24 through 26 of Galatians 5, it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified him there. Let me just stop you there and say this. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not, I'm a slightly morally better person who votes a certain way uh, and who goes to church sometimes. It means I am actively crucifying the desires of my flesh. I'm actively putting them to a cross. I am actively dying to myself. Being a Christian is not being morally better than everybody in the room. Being a Christian is being the first person in the room to admit how immoral you are. To be the first person to admit how immoral you are. Verse 25. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. See, the minute you say yes to Jesus, Christians... The Holy Spirit is living in you, which means you are living by the Spirit right now. But he's weird. Well, that must be uncomfortable because your awkward roommate is living inside of you, right? So if he's living inside of us, let's follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. This is what Galatians 5 is about. Verse 16, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Verse 18, when you are directed by the Spirit. Verse 25, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading. The second manifestation of the Holy Spirit, before you even get to the gifts, the second best manifestation of the Holy Spirit is being led by the Spirit in your ordinary life. Being guided by the Spirit in your ordinary life. And so here's the baby step I want to invite everybody in our church to take as we become a church that shows and tells, is to increase our capacity to notice and respond to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. I call it a nudge. Uh, some people say it's like a tap on the shoulder. Uh, some people have said it's like, a, for staff, it's often like a gut instinct, right? Just this week, I was talking to Julia about something, and I felt a nudge to ask her a very specific question, and I didn't do it. I'm, I'm getting better at hearing nudges and noticing them. I get probably a B minus in that. I'm probably at like a, a D plus, C minus, and following through on nudges, okay? Um, I'm very busy. I'm very active. So for, for, the, for me to really, for the Lord to really get to me, um, it has to be like that scene in... Um, European vacation with Chevy Chase when they're stuck in the roundabout. Look, kids, Big Ben. Look, kids, Big Ben. Look, kids, Big Ben. They're stuck. Look, kids, Big Ben. That's what I need the Lord to kind of like, hey, hey, so I'm talking to Julia. Maybe I could ask that question now. Conversation. I should ask her that question now. Ask that question. I was like, hey, can I ask you a question? I'll tell you what, I, I was right. Like, I, I, I knew, I understood something, and, and I was glad I asked. Um, you know, sometimes it's this gut feeling. Sometimes it's often like a, you know. And here's what I want to do. I want to bracket. I want to put a bracket around. I'm, I want to hold us all together. I want to pastor everybody. I want to love everybody. There's a place for everybody. But I am going to grab our whole church with brackets and continue to move us toward that direction. So yesterday, National Supernatural Workshop, third in a series of four, we saw three people supernaturally healed. Amanda was one of them. Ken was one of them. Talk to them after church if you're skeptical. And it's okay if you're skeptical. Um, my call is to bring everybody along as long as they're moving with us a little bit. You see what I'm saying? 
but I want to bracket our church and, and kind of keep moving us in this overall direction of, and by I, I mean we, our leaders, our oversight team, our elders, we're, we're all kind of just trying to move us to the right a little bit, baby steps, to become a church that is naturally supernatural. And we don't have to be in all, and, and I didn't say this in the last service. I'm saying so much in this one that I didn't say. So make sure this one goes online. Um, we don't have to be the same in practice, but we do need to be the same in posture. I think that's why, Carmen, you got that word about how sweet it is when brothers dwell with unity. We don't need to be the same in practice. We don't all need to be like healing people and casting out demons tomorrow, but that'd be great. But if we, we <laughs> but, but we, we can be the same in posture and an ongoing posture of dependence on the Holy Spirit, yeah? Um, to be, I want us to be unified in posture, seeking at the Holy Spirit's leading, moving in the manifestation of the Spirit so that as we give everyone in our neighborhoods and networks an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus, we punch a hole through the buffer, the wall they put around themselves, and they fall to their knees and they say, surely God is among you. Right? I want us to be a church that takes Mickey Mouse's head out of that guy's arms So to do that, Steph is going to lead us, just for a quick response time. So one of the things that we um, want to do, as Kyle said, is just each kind of take a step, and we want to be so sensitive to where everyone is at, and we we don't want to ever we don't ever manipulate, we don't ever want to coerce, and we don't ever want to um, do something that God is not doing in your life. And the whole point of our response time is to reflect on what is God's invitation to you individually. And so, you know, we can't pretend to know what God is doing in your heart and your life, but our Heavenly Father, who is so good, does. And so um, I just want to invite you. I'm going to just pray over you. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes because this is not about what God's doing in other people's lives. This is about what God's doing in your life. And i just like to pray over you. And if you are in a place where you're like, I would like to see more of the Holy Spirit, even if that's just a little shuffling step, um, I just invite you to put your hands out. Um, and then I just, I'm going to pray over us. Father, we thank you that you are a good and compassionate Father, that you meet us right where we are, um, and that your invitation isn't to um, long jump into something that is uh, foreign to us, but that your invitation is to take um, the next step of faith. And so um, I just pray over these brothers and sisters um, that you would send um, just a fresh measure of your Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit, I pray for those that need comfort, that you would be their comforter today. For those that need um, just the strength and the power to live faithfully this week, moment by moment, that you would bring that power to bear upon their lives. I pray for those that are struggling to nail their sin to the cross. The Holy Spirit, that you would come and supernaturally cut off that desire for that sin that you would set them free, that you would break any chains. And Holy Spirit, I pray for those that want, just are so hungry for more of you and want to see you move and want to see you do more, that you would give them the courage to take the risk to see you at work. That when that moment comes, that they would take the step of faith, trusting that you will meet them there. So we just pray that you would come, Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts with your presence. Father, I pray that you would change our minds where we need to
change, that you would heal our hearts where we need healing, and that you would set us free to worship and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.